Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, March 31st, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, three years in, what we've learned during the pandemic, what we've lost, and what happens next, from the New York Times. And Coffee and Your Heart, the impact may be different than you think, from the Wall Street Journal. Plus, Live Free and Die, the sad state of U.S. life expectancy, from NPR News. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. Three years in, what we've learned during the pandemic, what we've lost, and what happens next. It's not over. Are things back to normal? That depends on whom you ask. By Charlie Luck from the New York Times. In the spring of 2020, Zoe Zervos was just as scared as everyone else. Her school in Rolla, Missouri, had temporarily switched to remote schooling, and she was worried for family members who were older and who worked as nurses. The coronavirus was all anyone could talk about. But today... I don't really think about the pandemic very much anymore, says Zoe, who's now 12. It was scary when it was happening, but now it's over, she says. She and her friends have gone back to joking around and talking about games. Things just seem normal. Lots of people feel the same way. Look around. Restaurants and movie theaters are full. People are traveling again. Masks are mostly optional. As President Biden put it in his State of the Union address on February 7th, today, COVID no longer controls our lives. A week earlier, his administration announced that beginning in May, COVID-19 would no longer be treated as a national and public health emergency, which means the government won't give as many resources to fighting it. For most Americans, COVID is no longer a big threat, says Dr. Sira Madad, who studies infectious diseases. But the coronavirus is still around and making people sick. We're past the most serious phase of the pandemic, she says, but it's not over for everyone. During the month of February, around 420 Americans died from COVID on average every day. So for some people, things can't go back to normal. Jace Day, age 14, has a medical condition that makes him more likely to get sick and experience serious symptoms. Three years into the pandemic, he still has to take a lot of precautions. I don't go anywhere with big crowds unless it's for baseball, says Jace, who plays on his team in Shawnee, Kansas. Also, two years ago, he transferred to a smaller school for safety reasons, and he still misses his old friends. To him, the pandemic doesn't feel over at all. Everybody's situation is different, But whether you're still wearing a mask or not, or isolating or not, one thing is clear. We all really, really want to be able to put the coronavirus behind us. Lots of Important Lessons by Tara Haley A big reason COVID-19 spread so far so quickly is a simple one. It was new. At the beginning of the pandemic, we knew very, very little about this virus, says Caitlin Jedalina, who studies big health issues. Doctors and scientists weren't sure how to keep people safe, so a lot of their advice changed from week to week and month to month. That was confusing and frustrating. But it was also a good sign because it meant we were learning, says Saskia Popescu, an infection prevention scientist. 
We all know a lot more now than we did three years ago. Let's look back. 2020, no symptoms, no problem. Now, you can feel okay and still be contagious. At first, scientists thought only people who had symptoms like cough and fever could spread the virus to other people. Now we know that infected people might feel fine, but still can pass on the virus. That's one reason social distancing and masking were so important. 2020. Masks? Maybe. Now. Masks matter. At first, health officials didn't recommend wearing a mask. They didn't want people buying up masks that doctors and nurses needed, Jedalina says. Scientists also didn't think masks would help that much. It turns out they do. They trap some of the virus when people breathe or talk. That's why masks were mandatory in many public places for quite a while. Some people still wear masks regularly, and others don't. 2020. Disinfect your groceries. Now, don't bother. Remember how people were washing their purchases and waiting days before opening mail? That's because scientists thought you could easily get COVID from touching germy surfaces. Lots of viruses spread that way, so it was a reasonable concern. But scientists gradually learned that COVID-19 mostly spreads through tiny droplets in the air. 2020. COVID is an old person problem. Now, COVID can be bad news for anyone. In the beginning, a lot of the people who got the most sick or died from COVID-19 were elderly. It didn't seem that kids got it as much, and when they did, the symptoms were usually mild. Scientists learned that in reality, kids were as likely to catch COVID as grown-ups, and that it could develop into a more dangerous condition called Miss C. Fortunately, Miss C is very rare, and vaccines help prevent COVID in the first place. 2020, a vaccine will end the pandemic. Now, vaccines work, but not how we thought. People expected the pandemic to end quickly once there was a vaccine. That didn't happen. Vaccines came out in late 2020 and 2022 for young kids. They worked really well, but their protection wears off. The virus also keeps changing or mutating to avoid medicines meant to stop it, so even vaccinated people can get COVID. Vaccines still did an important job. They kept a lot of people from going to the hospital or dying. Now, scientists are studying how booster shots can keep COVID under control. Up next, coffee and your heart. The impact may be different than you think. New study finds no effect on atrial contractions, though there may be other health impacts. By Julie Warnow from The Wall Street Journal. Coffee lovers take heart. America's favorite stimulant might not be so risky for cardiac health after all, but there may still be other health effects, researchers say. Coffee consumption doesn't increase abnormal heartbeats associated with an increased risk of the most common heart rhythm disturbance, according to a new study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Researchers monitored the hearts, activity, and sleep of 100 people without underlying heart conditions over two weeks, they found that the key cardiac risk marker remained about the same for coffee drinkers as it did for non-coffee drinkers. The irregular heart rhythm known as atrial fibrillation can lead to dangerous blood clots that can cause stroke and heart failure. 
The common arrhythmia known as atrial fibrillation isn't caused or worsened by caffeine, despite the widespread belief among many physicians and patients that coffee should be avoided in these conditions, said Deepak Bhatt, director of Mount Sinai Heart in New York, who wasn't involved in the study. Cardiologists have long considered coffee a potential heart health risk in individuals with underlying health conditions, since it contains caffeine, a stimulant that increases heart rate. A study published in the Journal of the American Heart Association in 2022 found that drinking two or more cups of coffee a day was associated with twice the risk of heart death in people with severe hypertension compared with non-coffee drinkers. But other research has shown an association between moderate coffee intake and a reduced risk of mortality in the population overall. Researchers are still trying to understand the underlying reasons for these effects. The group of 100 volunteers, ranging from their 20s to their 70s, were strictly monitored. Researchers had them wear continuously recording electrocardiogram devices, which record electrical signals from the heart, Fitbits to monitor their step counts and sleep, and continuous glucose monitors. The participants also downloaded a smartphone application that tracked their location so that researchers knew when they had entered a coffee shop. The study authors texted instructions each night, letting them know the days they could drink coffee or needed to avoid caffeine altogether. Americans drank 517 million cups of coffee a day in 2022, according to the National Coffee Association, and 66% of Americans surveyed reported drinking coffee within the past day. Other findings from the study painted a more mixed picture of coffee's impact on health. People who were assigned to drink coffee recorded 10% more steps, 10,646,000 steps versus 9,665 for non-coffee drinkers, with steps increasing the more coffee they drank. Several large prospective studies have found a 6 to 15% reduction in mortality associated with additional steps each day. But coffee drinkers also recorded 35 fewer minutes of sleep per night. Research points to significantly increased mortality risk for people who don't get enough sleep. The study also found coffee drinkers had a higher number of premature ventricular heartbeats, 154 versus 102 a day for no caffeine days, a type of irregular heartbeat that can contribute to heart weakening if experienced at much higher levels over several years. Since the risk of premature atrial contractions and atrial fibrillation increases with age, it is unclear how the findings might affect older patients than those who participated in the study, said Mohammed Afzal, a clinical assistant professor of internal medicine at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, who wasn't involved in the study. At the same time, patients with symptomatic premature ventricular contractions should avoid or minimize coffee consumption based on the findings, he said. The electrical signal that starts your heartbeat typically comes from the top right chamber of the heart, or the atrium. Premature ventricular contractions occur when the electrical signal that starts your heartbeat comes from one of your bottom two heart chambers and makes the heart contract differently. It can feel like a skipped heartbeat, according to the Cleveland Clinic. The contractions are common and typically not problematic unless they represent a large number of heartbeats, according to research findings. 
premature atrial contraction is only problematic at higher frequency. Most people experience them at least once a day. When the signal comes early, there may not be much blood in the heart at the moment, according to the Cleveland Clinic. A pause and a strong beat may follow the extra heartbeat, making it feel like a skipped beat, the medical group concluded. At the same time, participants in the New England Journal of Medicine study were tested for genetic markers that determined if they were likely to metabolize caffeine slowly or more quickly. Those with a slower metabolism lost nearly an hour of sleep a night, and faster metabolizers experienced more premature ventricular contractions when they consumed coffee. The true health effects of coffee are complicated, said lead study author Gregory Marcus, professor of medicine in residence and endowed professor in atrial fibrillation research at the University of California, San Francisco. This is just the nature of the substance that is one of the most commonly consumed substances in the world, he said. A study published last May in the Annals of Internal Medicine used U.K. biobank data from more than 170,000 people that detailed their coffee-drinking habits and followed their health outcomes over several years. The study found that moderate coffee drinkers were 30 percent less likely to die even after accounting for lifestyle and socioeconomic factors. Those benefits dissipated as people increased their intake. Dr. Larry Chinitz, director of the Heart Rhythm Center and co-lead of NYU Langone Heart, said if people are looking to improve their heart health, drinking coffee or staying away from it isn't likely to be the most critical factor. He said the kind of lifestyle choices that most people need to make to prevent and control cardiac conditions are much harder than picking up or avoiding that daily cup of coffee. People ignore exercise, diet, and sleep patterns, and those may be the greatest contributors to cardiovascular disease, he said. Up next, Live Free and Die, The Sad State of U.S. Life Expectancy by Selena Simmons-Duffin from NPR. Just before Christmas, federal health officials confirmed life expectancy in America had dropped for a nearly unprecedented second year in a row, down to 76 years. While countries all over the world saw life expectancy rebound during the second year of the pandemic after the arrival of vaccines, the U.S. did not. Then, last week, more bad news. Maternal mortality in the U.S. reached a high in 2021. Also, a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association found rising mortality rates among U.S. children and adolescents. This is the first time in my career that I've ever seen an increase in pediatric mortality. It's always been declining in the United States for as long as I can remember, says the JAMA paper's lead author, Stephen Wolfe, Director Emeritus of the Center on Society and Health at Virginia Commonwealth University. Now it's increasing at a magnitude that has not occurred for at least a half a century, he says. Across the lifespan and across every demographic group, Americans die at younger ages than their counterparts in other wealthy nations. How could this happen? In a country that prides itself on scientific excellence and innovation and spends an incredible amount of money on health care, the population keeps dying at younger and younger ages. An unheard alarm. One group of people are not surprised at all. 
Wolf and the other researchers involved in a landmark 400-page study 10 years ago with a name that says it all, Shorter Lives, Poorer Health. The research by a panel convened by the National Academy of Sciences and funded by the National Institutes of Health compared U.S. health and death with other developed countries. The results showed, convincingly, that the U.S. was stalling on health advances in the population while other countries raced ahead. The authors tried to sound an alarm but found few in the public or government or private sectors were willing to listen. In the years since, the trends have worsened. American life expectancy is lower than that of Cuba, Lebanon, and Chechia. Ten years later, here's a look back at what that eye-popping study found and why the researchers involved believe it's not too late to turn the trends around. Beyond Bad Habits Americans are used to hearing about how their poor diets and sedentary lifestyles make their health bad. It can seem easy to brush that off as another scold about eating more vegetables and getting more exercise. But the picture painted in the Shorter Lives report could shock even those who feel like they know the story. American children are less likely to live to age five than children in other high-income countries, the authors write on the second page. It goes on, even Americans with healthy behaviors, for example, those who are not obese or do not smoke, appear to have higher disease rates than their peers in other countries. The researchers catalog what they call the U.S. health disadvantage, the fact that living in America is worse for your health and makes you more likely to die younger than if you lived in another rich country like the U.K., Switzerland, or Japan. We went into this with an open mind as to why it is that the U.S. had a shorter life expectancy than people in other countries, says Wolf, who chaired the committee that produced the report. After looking across different age and racial and economic and geographic groups, he says, what we found was that this problem existed in almost every category we looked at, he says. That's why, says Eileen Crimmins, professor of gerontology at the University of Southern California, who was also on the panel that produced the report, they made a deliberate choice to focus on the health of the U.S. population as a whole. That was a decision not to emphasize the differences in our population because there is data that actually shows that even the top proportion of the U.S. population does worse than the top proportion of other populations, she explains. We were trying to just say, look, this is an American problem, she says. Digging into the why. The researchers were charged with documenting how Americans have more diseases and die younger and to explore the reasons why. We were very systematic and thorough about how we thought about this, says Wolf. The panel looked at American life and death in terms of the public health and medical care system, individual behaviors like diet and tobacco use, social factors like poverty and inequality, the physical environment, and public policies and values. In every one of those five buckets, we found problems that distinguished the United States from other countries, he says. Yes, Americans eat more calories and lack universal access to health care, but there's also higher child poverty, racial segregation, social isolation, and more. Even the way cities are designed makes access to good food more difficult. 
Everybody has a pet thing they worry about and say it's oral health or it's suicides. Everyone has something that they're legitimately interested in and want to see more attention to, says John Haga, who was the director of the Division of Behavioral and Social Research at the National Institute on Aging at NIH before he retired. The great value of an exercise like this one was to step back and say, okay, all of these things are going on, but which of them best account for these long-term population-level trends that we're seeing, he says. The answer is varied. A big part of the difference between life and death in the U.S. and its peer countries is people dying or being killed before age 50. The Shorter Lives report specifically points to factors like teen pregnancy, drug overdoses, HIV, fatal car crashes, injuries, and violence. Two years' difference in life expectancy probably comes from the fact that firearms are so available in the United States, Crimin says. There's the opioid epidemic, which is clearly ours. That was our drug companies, and other countries didn't have that because those drugs were more controlled. Some of the difference comes from the fact that we are more likely to drive more miles. We have more cars, she says, and ultimately more fatal crashes. When we were doing it, we were joking we should call it Live Free and Die, based on the New Hampshire slogan, Live Free or Die, Crimin says. The National Academy of Sciences said, that's outrageous, that's too provocative, she says. There are some things Americans get right, according to the Shorter Lives report. The United States has higher survival after age 75 than do peer countries, and it has higher rates of cancer screening and survival, better control of blood pressure and cholesterol levels, lower stroke mortality, lower rates of current smoking, and higher average household income. But those achievements, it's clear, aren't enough to offset the other problems that befall many Americans at younger ages. All of this costs the country tremendously. Not only do families lose loved ones too soon, but having a sicker population costs the country as much as $100 billion every year in extra health care costs. Behind the statistics detailed in this report are the faces of young people, infants, children, and adolescents, who are unwell and dying early because conditions in this country are not as favorable as those in other countries, the paper's authors wrote. Little Action Despite the Stakes Shorter Lives is filled with recommended next steps for the government, especially the NIH, which has a budget of more than $40 billion annually to conduct research to improve Americans' health. The NIH should undertake a thorough examination of the policies and approaches that countries with better health outcomes have found useful and that may have application with adaptations in the United States, the authors wrote. In other words, let's figure out what they are doing that works in other places and do it over here. Dr. Ravi Sani, who helped conceive of and launch the Shorter Lives study at NIH before he left the agency, had high hopes that the report would make a mark. I really thought that when the results came out, they would be so obvious that people would say, let's finally do this, he says. Ten years on, how much of the detailed action plan has been done? To be brief, very little of that has happened, Wolf says. At the time, he says, NIH officials didn't seem very interested in raising awareness about the panel's findings or in following up on its proposed research agenda. There was some media coverage at the time that the report rolled out, but NIH was not involved in trying to promote awareness about the report, he says. Crimmins agrees. 
There was a little bit more research, but there wasn't any policy reaction, she says. I thought there might be, because it's embarrassing, but it just tends to be ignored. Those who are interested in this issue, she notes, tend to be those invested in marvelous things they think are going to delay aging, even though people older than 75 are the only age group in the country that already does comparatively well, she says. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker.